Well, good morning. Why don't you uh, grab your Bible and let's open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and uh, just as you're turning there, just want to say happy Father's Day to all of you dads, and I want you to know how deeply thankful uh, that we are to the Lord for those of you who have embraced what is perhaps one of the highest callings that God could ever possibly give to us, uh, to raise our children in the ways of the Lord, and to love our wives as Jesus Christ loves the church. Uh, Being a dad today is not an easy calling, but it is a necessary calling, and uh, we are deeply thankful for the godly example that, uh, that you set and for the legacy that you are committed to leave. And I trust that as you spend time with your family, uh, that this weekend will be filled with lots of red meat and remote controls and whatever else it is that makes for a happy Father's Day at your house. That's what it is at my house. Maybe it is at yours too. I don't know. But uh, happy Father's Day to all of you men. Uh, Just one other thing really quickly as you're finding your way to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Many of you have been so kind and encouraging as my family and I get ready for our sabbatical. And uh, some of you are like, hey man, what are you still doing here? And uh, like I thought you were taking off for a little while. uh, But you've been very nice as you've said that, so thank you. Um, Our sabbatical begins on July 2nd. And so our family will be around here for a couple more weeks still. And uh, Lord willing, I get to preach for those couple of weeks still. And, um, and we really appreciate your prayers as our family gets ready for that time of rest, uh, which again begins on July 2nd. And I just want to say again how thankful I am uh, for your encouragement and your support for our family during this time. Our elders in this church have been so gracious and so kind to our family. And that's just one thing in a long list of things that we love about this church. And Um, So during the time that we're gone, we have a full lineup of men who are coming to preach God's word here uh, over the summer. And of course, summer schedules take us in a bunch of different directions. We get that. We understand that. But when you're home, you are going to want to be here. And uh, you're going to want to hear what God has to say through these godly men that are going to come and be preaching God's word while they're here. So that's coming up this summer. Again, so thankful for your prayers and your encouragement in that. All right, let's have our Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We are a people who plan. From the first day of our life to the final day of our life, we are a people who plan. In some cases, even before we were born, our parents planned when to have us. And then when our parents brought us home from the hospital, we slept in a bedroom that our parents planned just for us. Our parents planned when we would eat and when we would sleep and how we would do it all over again the very next day and for many days after that. And when that plan got disrupted, it did not go well for anybody. And then a few years after that, our parents planned for us to go to school. And while we were at school, our parents planned for how they would catch up on the few years of sleep that they seemed to have missed. And when we got to school for the first time, it was like all of the planning just exploded to an entirely new level. Our time to learn was planned. Our time to play was planned. How we would learn and how we would play was planned, sometimes down to the very minute. Our time to eat was planned, and then we would go out for recess. And that was like the best part of the day. And and we would plan with our friends what we would play and how we would play it. A few years later, when we got to the end of elementary school, we would plan to go to high school. 
And then at the end of high school, we planned for college or for university or trade school, or we would start to work, which meant we had to plan to get a job. And then as we became adults, all of the planning just explodes again to an entirely new level. And we find ourselves planning work schedules and planning meetings and then planning meetings for planning meetings and planning how to meet people and then planning to meet new people and then planning how we're going to keep those new people as part of our lives. And before we know it, we're planning weddings and then we're planning finances and we plan how to spend our time, we plan our hobbies, we plan vacations, purchases, parties, retirements, we plan what to save, what to spend, what to give, what to take, we plan how to pay for our education and then how to pay off our education. As the commercial says, we even plan today for a better tomorrow and then when there's nothing else left for us to plan, some people even plan their own funeral. Like, really? Like, some people thrive on planning. The more details, the better. And other people live for the days where there feels like there's no plan at all, which probably drives the type A planners in the room into minor heart failure. And then in that, as Christians, many of us plan how we're going to get close to God and stay close to God. And so we have a plan to read his word. We have a plan to pray. We have a plan to worship, and we have a plan to be at church on the weekend, and we have a plan to get our kids into places where they're going to hear the gospel and, Lord willing, receive the gospel. Many of you dads in the room, we honor you today because you've worked so hard at helping your families get close to God and stay close to God. But let me ask you this. What is your plan when the devil tries to take you away from God? What's your strategy then? 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what do you do in your life to make sure that you don't get devoured? What's your plan? 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David getting devoured. It's the story of David's sexual sin with Bathsheba. It's the story of the man after God's own heart being seduced by the pleasures of his own heart. We read 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and and at the very least, we can all find ourselves somewhere in this story because at the very least, there are elements of this story that we can all relate to. We know the truth of David's sin because we've all lived it to some degree. Some of us, even to the extent that David experiences here in 2 Samuel 11, many of us, not quite to that extent, but we know it all to some measure. We all know David's hypocrisy because we've all been hypocritical. And many of us know what it is to carry the guilt and the shame and the regret and wonder if there's ever going to be any hope of restoration. Which I think is why this passage might matter to us more than we first realize. Not simply because we live in a hyper-sexualized culture where we see this at almost every turn, but this is important because if we do not have a plan to fight sexual sin, and not just sexual sin, but if we do not have a plan to fight any sin within our lives, then we leave the door wide open to the enemy. And we are only a few steps away from the kind of sin that could destroy absolutely everything that we love. So what is your plan to fight your sin? We're going to walk through this passage in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and as we do, I'd like to show you seven strategies in our struggle against sin. Seven strategies in our struggle against sin. So here's the first. Number one, know your battlegrounds thoroughly. 
Know your battlegrounds thoroughly. Now, we need to understand this right from the very beginning. For every single one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, the battle begins before the battle ever begins. The battle begins before the battle ever begins. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, what do you mean by that? Because that doesn't really seem to make sense to me. Well, here's what I mean. Every believer in Jesus Christ is engaged in a real-time spiritual battle. And our first step toward victory over sin within our lives is understanding the battlegrounds where the battles will rage the hardest. Now, our battles are against any number of things. Our battles are against things like lust and Sexual impurity and gossip, jealousy, covetousness, lack of contentment, anger, selfishness, and there are countless other things that we battle against on a daily basis, but those are the battles, and those battles are played out on a number of different battlegrounds. And David's experience here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 gives us at least three clues to some of the more common battlegrounds that we all find ourselves on at one time or another. These are not the only battlegrounds, but these are some of the more common battlegrounds that we find ourselves on. You may want to write these down. The first battleground is seasons of blessing. Seasons of blessing. Notice chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So a little bit of context here. Right now, at this particular point, David is experiencing a time of unparalleled blessing, not only in his own life, but within the life of the nation of Israel. In fact, back in chapter 8 and verse 14, it says that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Like, just imagine that. That is David's life right now. He has victory wherever he goes. So that sums up his entire existence pretty much at this particular point. He has victory, he has blessing. He has safety and security. He's living in a beautiful palace built for a king. He's comfortable. He's popular. He's loved by the people. And look at what's happening here in verse 1. It's been going so well for David that he has convinced himself that he doesn't need to be quite as disciplined as he has been up to this particular point in his life. So instead of him going out to battle himself like all of the other kings are doing and like David knows that he should be doing himself, he sends Joab, the commander of his army, instead. I mean, it's a season of blessing. Everything that David touches at this point is like turning to gold. And isn't that most often where our spiritual defenses go down to? Like in those seasons when things are happening, things are going our way at work and the kids are behaving at home and we have enough money in the bank and, and then some extra to do a few things that we want to do and everybody's happy, everybody's healthy, God's answering prayers. I mean, we are living the dream at that particular point and it's there in those seasons of blessing where everything seems to be going the right way, where the temptation is so strong for us to let our guards down even just for a little bit because we think that we have it all under control. So we look around us and, and everything's falling into place exactly the way that we want it to and, and we think, man, I, I got this. I can take care of this. We think we have it under control and do you know what that is? pride. It's pride. It's pride sneaking its way into our seasons of blessing. I mean, have you ever noticed that so often we are so much closer to God, not when life is easy, but when life is what? When it's hard. It's those times when we're walking through the valleys. It's those times when we don't have all the answers. Those are the times when 
we press in close to the Lord, but you got to see that that's not where David is right now because David is up on the mountaintop and David doesn't have any questions because he has all the answers and David knows how everything's coming together, not just in his life, but in the life of the nation of Israel as well. And when we get ourselves into those positions, more specifically, when God takes us into those seasons of blessing and we let our guard down in those seasons of blessing, it becomes a breeding ground for our pride. And before we know it, it can actually turn into the second battleground, which is stretches of boredom. Stretches of boredom. Notice chapter 11 and verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So at this point, everyone else is gone, fighting the battle that David should have been fighting too. David wakes up from a long afternoon nap one day, and he has nothing else to do. Now, I am definitely not against long afternoon naps. Everybody in favor of long afternoon naps? Amen? All right? They're a good thing. But keep something in mind here. The battle that David has sent his soldiers to fight is not won in one day. Like, these are long battles. All of his people that normally are around him have been gone now for a long time, and David finds himself all alone. He has nothing to do. At this point, he has no mission. He has no purpose. He has nothing of significance that he is giving his life to at this point. And so he gets up, and he takes a little walk, and not too far off in the distance, he notices a woman bathing, and the end of verse 2 says, and the woman was very beautiful. And when the Bible says that a woman is very beautiful, you can take the Bible's word for it. She was very beautiful. But do not miss this because this is how quickly the enemy strikes. Like we have no indication that David went looking for this, but that doesn't really matter because it found him anyway. And when it found him, he was sucked in right away. And he was sucked in right away because he had nothing else to do. He was bored. And let this be a lesson for us. Boredom is a dangerous battleground for the believer. Like when you and I are not actively pursuing our God-given purpose and instead we are wasting our lives on the pursuits of this world or, or equally tragic, we're wasting our lives on the pursuit of nothing, that swings the door wide open for the enemy to strike in an absolutely devastating way. Listen to the wisdom of J.C. Ryle. He says, truly... I believe that idleness, or boredom, has led to more sin than almost any other habit that could be named. I suspect it is the mother of many sins of the flesh, the mother of adultery, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and many other deeds of darkness that I do not have time to name. Let your own conscience say whether I speak the truth or not. You were once idle, and immediately the devil knocked at the door and came in. Just think for a minute about how devastatingly true that is. Not just what J.C. Ryle is saying and not just what David's experiencing at this point, but, but how this has been our experience at times too. Young men, grown men, spending so much time pursuing video games, pursuing pornography, pursuing lust, pursuing drugs, drunkenness, various forms of immorality. Young women, Grown women, oftentimes pursuing the very same things. Like we have to get it out of our head that that this battle against sexual impurity is just something that guys fight. Like men and women alike fight this battle every single day. 
Young women, grown women, often pursuing these very same things, maybe even standing on the very edge of adultery because the flirtation has gone one step farther and then another step farther and then another step farther, and you are ready to do something that would absolutely destroy your marriage and your family. And why do we do these things? Like, why do we give a window to these things into our lives? It's because we're bored. And it's not just that you're bored with your life. It's that you're bored with God. And somewhere along the way, you've bought into the lie that pursuing those things will give you something that is more than anything that God could ever give you. Like, we need to understand that the way to overcoming lust and the way to overcoming coveting and the way to overcoming any other form of addiction within our life is not just by trying to lessen our desire for those things within our lives. It's not just by trying to push it down and push it down and push it down until it's not there anymore. The way to overcoming those things is not just by lessening our desire for those things. It's by growing your desire for God. By growing your desire for the greatest thing that we can possibly know within our lives. Too many people have bought into the lie within our culture that the highest forms of fulfillment are found in the unrestrained, self-indulgent pursuit of whatever it is that brings us pleasure. When in fact, the highest form of fulfillment within our lives is found not in the pursuit of a thing, but in the pursuit of a person who has promised that he will fulfill all of our greatest desires within himself. See, the problem is that the third battleground often prevents us from getting to that. And the third battleground is signs of belligerence. So look at chapter 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the third battleground, signs of belligerence. In other words, we're showing signs of ignoring the warnings. We're just ignoring the warnings. David inquires about who this woman is, and look at verse 3 again. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, this unknown, unnamed guy is standing before the king and saying to him, David, this is someone's daughter. Like this is someone else's wife that you are shamefully objectifying. You know what verse three is? It's a way of escape. I mean, this was David's trap door to get out of this situation. And the Bible says that even in our moments of greatest temptation, when the fire burns the brightest and the hottest, that God gives us a way of escape, even in the midst of our own temptation. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, anyone who thinks that they've got it covered, Anyone who walks into the heat and the fire of temptation and says, God, you know what? I got it. I'm good. Like, I can take care of this, and and I'm just going to get closer to the fire and closer to the fire and closer to the fire every single time. But don't worry about me, God, because I won't get burned. 
Like, I'm too smart, I'm too sly, I'm too sleek to ever get burned and ever get burned by that. So you don't need to worry about me, God. You know what that is? That is utter foolishness. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now pause there just for a second because there's a lot of people who take that particular verse and completely misapply it and take it out of its context and say, well, well, God says in the Bible that he's never gonna give me anything in my life that I can't handle. And that's not what this verse is saying. I mean, God gives us grace just to breathe in and breathe out every single day. Like, we can't do that without him. Like, welcome to my life. There is nothing I can do apart from the grace of God. There is nothing you can do apart from the grace of God. So this verse is not saying that God never gives us anything that we can't handle. This is talking specifically about temptation. Okay? So no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. You need to underline that, highlight it, circle it in your Bible so it sticks out. God is faithful. It's got to be an amen. Amen. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Every time that we are tempted, God graciously provides a way of escape. So think about this for a minute. You know what it is when the phone rings at just that moment? You know what it is when someone else walks into the room or when someone else cuts you off and tells you that you don't need to say that? You know what that is when that website takes too long to load? That's your way of escape. Like, take it. Get out of there. Flee from it. Like, you got to understand, we're not messing around with this. This is not a joke because the Bible says that if this stuff goes on unchecked in our lives for long enough, these become matters of life and death. So do not minimize this. Because if we do, it ends up leading us straight down the very same path that David is going right now. And the whole reason that David finds himself in this mess right now is because for all of this time, he has been fighting the wrong battle on the wrong battleground. You see this? when he should have been out doing the one thing that God created him and called him to do, leading his troops in battle, leading them to victory, the one thing God has given him to do. Instead, he's at home wasting his time and setting his life in a direction that from that point forward, he would never be able to fix. Later, David's son Solomon would say this, specifically about sexual immorality. Specifically about adultery, specifically about the destruction and the devastation of sexual sin. He says this, Proverbs 7, verse 25. Do not let your hearts stray toward her. Her being a reference to the woman who seduces the man into immorality. Don't wander down her wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Listen, her bedroom is the den of death. I don't know if there's someone here right now who is toying with the idea of throwing everything away for one single moment of self-indulgent pleasure. But if there is, I plead with you to hear the warning 
from the word of God. Do not do it. Because that one decision, the Bible says, will not lead you to the way of delight. It will lead you to the way of death. It will ruin everything that you love. So do not do it. I mean, this is why we say the battle begins before the battle ever begins. We need to know our battlegrounds thoroughly. All of that now sets the stage for the six remaining strategies. Here's strategy number two. Avoid the avalanche of cover-up immediately. Whenever um, we take the top layer of our sin and, and it's peeled back, we're all faced with the very same decision. Confess it or cover it. Every single one of us. We're all faced with that same decision. Confess it or cover it. There's wisdom in one. There's great foolishness in the other. And David here chooses poorly. Notice chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So this is part one of David's plan to cover up his sin. He sends to Joab and, and gets Joab to send Uriah home from battle. And, and then David gives Uriah a free pass to go home and be with his wife. And David thinks that if Uriah and Bathsheba are together, then they'll think that the baby is Uriah's and David will be off the hook and they can sweep this whole thing under the rug and nobody will know any different, except that's not exactly the way that it works. Take a look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and his servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and drink and, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah says, you know, thanks, king, for bringing me home. That was really nice. But, but the presence of your God lives in a tent. And all of my fellow soldiers are laying out in an open field, and they're putting their lives on the line right now. How can I possibly go home and take it easy when all of this is going on? Now, pause here for a second. Can you imagine how that must have made David feel to hear Uriah say that? Because Uriah knows at this point that he should not be at home hobnobbing it up with the king and enjoying all these gifts and everything that David's sending after him. He knows that he should be out in battle. He should be fighting this war. And David knows that he should be doing the very same thing. He should be out leading his troops in battle. And so here is another way of escape for David. It's another opportunity for him to come clean, confess it or cover it. And David chooses foolishly again, which leads to this next layer of deception. Notice verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So this time, David invites Uriah over for dinner and gets him drunk with the hopes that Uriah will just kind of wander home to his wife. The problem is that David gets Uriah so wasted that Uriah never makes it past David's front porch and he falls asleep right there, which leads to the next layer of deception. Notice verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. 
In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David now has become so desperate in his attempt to cover up his own sin that he sends Uriah back into the battle with his own death sentence right in his hand. And Uriah doesn't even know it. And in the process, not only does Uriah die, but a bunch of innocent people around him who had nothing to do with David's deceit end up dying as well. (coughs) Isn't that the way that sin works? Isn't that the way that deception and cover-up, and we, we take the sin within our lives that we're holding on to and we don't want anybody else to know and we think we're hiding from everybody else and then one day it gets exposed and it destroys the people around us who are closest to us that we love so much who had no idea. Just had no idea. So Joab sends word back to David that his cover-up has finally worked. Uriah is dead. And look at how David responds to the news. Verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Your attempt to cover up one sin in your life is not simply an attempt to cover up that one sin. Because the chances are very good that you will eventually sin in other ways in order to cover up that first sin. That's the whole pattern that we see right here with David. Notice how many times the passage says that David sent for people. First of all, he sends Joab to fight the battle that he should have been fighting himself. And then he sends for Bathsheba and takes her. And then he sends for Joab again. And then he sends for Uriah. And then he sends Uriah back. And then he sends for Bathsheba again. The point is, David's attempt to cover up his adultery led to many other sins. Like the cover-up of the adultery led to an abuse of his power. And the abuse of his power led to manipulation, and the manipulation led to deception, and ultimately the deception led to murder, all because he did not come clean way back at the very beginning. We need to understand that our attempts to cover up our sin never dig us out of the hole. They only dig us deeper in. I've shared this illustration with you before when Wolves prey on seals up in the north. Hunters will take a two-edged knife and they'll dip it in seal's blood and then let it freeze. And they'll do this several times until several layers of frozen blood are covering the blade. And then they'll bury the handle in the ground so that only the blade is standing straight up. Eventually, the wolf will pick up the scent of the seal blood. He'll make his way over and he'll start to lick the frozen blood. The wolf becomes so intoxicated with the seal blood that he just keeps licking and licking and licking, but his tongue becomes numb because of the cold. 
The problem is that as he keeps licking, he eventually gets down to the blade, but he can no longer feel his own tongue by that point. So as he's licking, he's cutting his own tongue to shreds. And so now the blood that's coming out of his mouth is no longer the seal blood, it's his own blood. And it's not until it's too late that the wolf realizes that he has just destroyed himself. That's what sin does to you and to me. And that's what covering up our sin will do to us every single time. The cover-up deceives you into believing that you are digging your way out when in reality you are only digging yourself deeper in. And in the end, just like the wolf, you end up destroying yourself. Avoid the avalanche of cover-up immediately. Strategy number three, receive the warnings soberly. Enter now the prophet Nathan, who courageously speaks into David's life. Look at chapter 12 and verse one. Nathan tells David a parable, verse one, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Like, we need to pray that God will send those kind of people into our lives, people who will tell us the truth because they love us too much to let us walk over the cliff. Notice the very first part of chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Like the Lord is sending Nathan to David to communicate this message. You're going too far. You've gone too far. You need to come back. Earlier this year, Stacy and I got to go to the Grand Canyon for the very first time. We have this picture I don't know if you can see that picture too clearly from where you're sitting, but um, right here, this is like the very touristy thing to do, right? So you stand, you take a canyon selfie with the canyon in the background, and, and uh, there's a, a stone wall right behind where Stacy's standing there. And, and just imagine that Stacy and I are walking along that path next to that stone wall. <clears throat> and the only thing, just imagine, the only thing that Stacy's concerned about in that moment is taking her canyon selfie right? And, and she's getting closer and closer to the edge, and she's getting dangerously close to falling over. The worst thing that I could do in that moment is what? Worst thing I could do in that moment is to say nothing. Like, the worst thing is just to let her take the selfie, and then to look around at all of the other tourists that are gathered there with us, and, and just say to them, well, you know, she really wants the selfie with the canyon, so, so let's just let her do that. Let's just let her go and take that picture and and don't worry about how close she is to the edge of the cliff. Everything's going to work out fine. We live in a culture where that's the message. We live in a culture where so many people are walking so dangerously close to the edge of the cliff and they are about to fall over. And what we most often hear from our culture is, well, that's just the way that she is. And that's just what he wants to do. And who am I to tell that person how to live their life? That is the most horrible tragic thing that we could ever do. 
If someone is getting too close to the edge, there is a sense of urgency to get there as fast as we can, to pull them away from that danger. And we do that because we love them and we care about them. And granted, sometimes the church has this well-earned reputation of rushing to the edge of the cliff, almost like we're going to push people over instead of pulling them back in. But think about this. How can we just stand beside each other when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ about to fall over the edge of the cliff because of unrepentant sin within their life and then just sit there and say, well, that's the way he's always been? Like, that's just what she wants to do? It's not loving to let someone stand so close to the edge of the cliff and not say anything. But then, if you flip this around and look at it from the other perspective, on the other hand, God brings other people into our lives. Brings other people into our lives to help us see our sin and our need to get away from the cliff so that we don't fall over to our death. And quite frankly, one of the worst things that we could ever do is refuse the hand that is trying to help us back up even when we know that we are falling over the edge of the cliff. Just think about it. God can use things in your life like an accountability relationship or a close friend or a song that we sing or maybe God's even using this sermon right now. Maybe God is using his word right now to speak truth into your life. Like when you are living in sin and you know that you're living in sin and then God sends someone into your life to pull you away from the cliff, do not refuse that because that is a gift of the grace of God within your life. When the Lord sends a Nathan to you, listen to that person. Right now could be the very moment where God is pulling you away from the cliff and saving you from destruction. So hear the warning and receive the warning soberly. Seven strategies in our struggle against sin. Know your battlegrounds thoroughly. Avoid the, av the avalanche of cover-up immediately. Receive the warning soberly. And then this, number four, recite God's faithfulness thankfully. So chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you my master's house, and, and, your, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Note this, that the deeper the hole we dig for ourselves, the quicker we forget what God has done for us. The deeper the hole we dig, the quicker we forget what God has done. Notice here, God says to David, hey David, remember that time all those years ago when I sent Samuel to your father's house and he looked past all of your brothers and then he looked at you and I appointed you and I anointed you to be the king of Israel? Remember that? And David, remember all those years of running for your life from Saul and hiding in the caves and wondering if you were gonna die and all of those psalms that you wrote at the lowest point of your life, but then I delivered you from every one of them? Remember that? And, and David, don't you remember when Saul died, I made you king in Israel and gave you possession of the entire kingdom? And, and then it's like God ties a little bow on the end of it and says, and David, if that were not enough, I would have given you so much more. It's like God is saying, David, all you had to do was come to me. All you had to do was trust in me to satisfy the desires of your heart and I would have given you more than anything that the world ever could have given you. Like this is the heart of sin. It deceives us. 
Like when we sin, and especially when we continue in unrepentant sin, it's like we're looking to God and saying, God, I am not satisfied with what you have given me, and so I'm going to go and try and get things for myself. Even worse than that, when we sin and when we continue in unrepentant sin, it's like we're looking to God and saying, God, I'm not satisfied not only with what you haven't given me, I'm not satisfied with you. So I'm going to go and do my own thing and live my own life. And that is why when we're standing on the edge of the cliff and disaster may only be one step away, this is why this becomes so important. When you are tempted to sin and you're tempted to that one moment of self-indulgent pleasure and you have bought into the lie that that's going to satisfy you in ways that nothing else can, that's the moment when we need just even that one little sliver of self-control from the Holy Spirit of God to step back in that moment and say, thank you, God, for my marriage. Like, thank you, God, for establishing my family. Even though it's hard right now, even though it's difficult and I don't know how all of this is going, thank you, God, for these blessings. Thank you, God, for years' worth of provision within my life. Maybe God hasn't led you to marriage and a family yet, but still, thank you, God, for blessing after blessing after blessing within my life, all of which I would completely and totally lose if I take one more step over the edge of that cliff. Again, there might be someone here today and you are one step away from walking over the edge. You need to understand that God is telling you the way back right now. He's offering you the way back right now. He is reaching out to you right now and saying, come back to me. Recite his faithfulness thankfully. But that can't happen without strategy number five. Name your sin specifically. Name your sin specifically. We have to remember that it is a gift of God's grace that he shines his light into the darkest places of our hearts. Take a look at chapter 12 and verse 9. This is God speaking through Nathan to David. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God is teaching us that the path to restoration begins by calling our sin what it is. Look at how David, or look at how God rather describes what David has done here. Verse 9. He has despised the word of the Lord. So how has David done that? Well, he's broken at least three of the Ten Commandments just here in this one circumstance alone. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Verse 9, he has done evil in the sight of God. He has struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. He has taken Uriah's wife as his own. Notice that even though the Ammonites ended up killing Uriah in battle, God blames David for his death. That's David's responsibility. Verse 10, God says that David has despised God. And again, David has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be his own. Now notice this. God is telling David where he has gone wrong. Isn't this one of the biggest sore spots within our culture? Who's God to tell me how to live my life? Why should I let an ancient book like the Bible dictate the way that I live my life today? 
And, and why do you keep telling me that this is the way that I should live and this is what I should do? And, and it's not just people thinking this way. It's entire philosophies and ideologies and religions that are built on the foundation of this individualism and self-determinism. And, and some of you are going back into workplaces tomorrow and you are going to be met with this kind of resistance. Some of you are going into new schools or into new school years next year and and maybe even leaving the protective wing of your parents for the very first time and you're going into environments that are known for saying these kinds of things. We need to see here what David failed to see here. And that is this. What we think to be good is determined not by what we see but by what God has said. What we think to be good is determined not by what we see, but by what God has said. David finally realizes this in verse 13, by the grace of God. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In God's grace, David's heart and his sin have been laid bare before God. Like this right here, this is the moment of repentance, when the sin is exposed. No trying to excuse it, no trying to justify it, simply taking responsibility for it and turning away from it. Which leads us then directly into strategy number six, accept the consequences humbly. Accept the consequences humbly. Chapter 12, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord also has put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord the child who is born to you shall die then Nathan went to his house David should die for his sin against God. But God spares his life. Later, David's children would commit horrible acts of injustice against one another, and because of David's sin, the son of David had to die. See, up to this point, David has experienced victory, prosperity, security, favor from God, all of those things. He has it all. And then in one moment of self-indulgent pleasure, he throws it all away. And from that point forward, David experiences discouragement, despair, and defeat because sin has ruined everything. Now, if that were the whole story and the story were to end there, that would be a very difficult ending for us. But that's not the end of the story because that's not the nature of our God. He's not the one to leave us in the punishment of our own sin with no hope of rescue. And so because that is true, we need to cling to this one last strategy in our struggle against sin. Number seven, welcome God's mercy freely. Welcome God's mercy freely. Notice verse 13 again. It says, And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And this right here is why there is hope for every single person in this room. No matter what mistakes you have made, no matter which ways you have fallen, no matter what sins you have committed, there is hope. There is restoration. There is life for the one who will acknowledge that they have sinned before the Lord because the Lord has made a way for our sin to be put away so that we will not die. 
That is good news. At some point later, David would write Psalm 51 in response to his failure in 2 Samuel 11. Listen to a little bit of what David writes in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Like as we read through Psalm 51 right now, just just imagine that this is your prayer to God right now. Your prayer to him, just between you and him. Listen to what David says a little bit later in Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Notice how many times just in those few verses that David cries out to the Lord for cleansing. That he cries out to the Lord to be made clean. And why is he doing that? Because he realizes that not only has he sinned, but he has sinned against the Lord. And he realizes that the Lord is the only one who can make him clean. Maybe you've gone through something in your life. And like David, you've been carrying the guilt and the shame and the regret for a long time. And maybe you have done what David did. Maybe you've done something like what David did. Maybe you're on the other end and you're the victim and someone else has done something like this to you. And what we need to hear this morning, what every single one of us need to hear right now in this room, no matter what our sin may be, what we all need to hear is that the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not simply that he hears prayers like this from Psalm 51, but that because of his death on the cross in our place, he has come and he has carried away our guilt and our shame and our regret for even the very worst of our sins. And because of his resurrection from the dead, he has victory over guilt and shame and regret and that by faith in him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The message of the cross is that there is no sin too great. There is no sin too ugly. There is no sin too evil to be forgiven by the God of mercy. And furthermore, the message of the resurrection is that God can take any situation that seems hopeless and dead and bring it back to life. So for some here today, this is a message of warning. Hear the warning. Receive the warning. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. For others here today, this is a message of mercy. Welcome it. Rest in it. And be forgiven and draw close to the God who loves you with an everlasting love.